I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Phyllis Schechter. She's a widow, a public speaker, and an educator about choices at the end of life. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. So we all come to this this work that we call a calling by, I, I think, the majority of us by a personal experience. And, and you had one. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal experience? Yes. My husband and I were in a beautiful marriage for many years. He was my best friend. And going back some years, uh, actually seven years before he died, he began to get sick. He was 10 years older than me. His first illness was that he lost his voice and we went to a throat surgeon at the Seattle Medical Center in Washington and he began to have a viral wart removed on his right vocal cord about every three to four months. And around this period of time, he was beginning to experience fatigue. That's a symptom that a lot of people have in our culture. And it's a symptom that it's hard to get a handle on. A year, within a year, we both began to notice cognitive decline in him. My husband was a brilliant man. He went to the you know, he went to Andover Prep School and Harvard and took the first computer course ever given in the world and was a brilliant man. And we both began to notice cognitive decline. The neuropsychologist couldn't find anything wrong with him. Two years later, he was examined again. The neuropsychologist couldn't find anything wrong with him. They gave him about two and a half hour uh, cognitive profiles, assessment tests. Couldn't find anything wrong. And during this whole period of time, we're going from specialist to specialist to specialist. Why doesn't Alan feel well? Why does he have all this fatigue? What's going on? No answers. And then at the end of 2011, he was diagnosed again, and he was diagnosed. They said, you have dementia of the Alzheimer's type. Six weeks later, he was diagnosed with laryngeal cancer in the same area where he was having these viral warts removed every three to four months. His mother had Alzheimer's and died, a, you know, a vegetable with, you know, I mean, no capacity of any kind, a shadow of a human being. And my father had Alzheimer's. And we knew that um, this was not a very positive road to go down in terms of end of life. And your husband knew that, so he he was aware that he didn't want to have the same death that his mother experienced. That's true. He knew that from the beginning. I mean, an interesting little side note about his mom is that a couple of times while she was um, still mentally competent and had Alzheimer's, this is before she went to live in any kind of a facility, um, she actually had two conversations with Alan when he visited with her about 
how she was hoping she could just take some pills and, you know, end it. But she was afraid that if she even tried to do that, which was illegal, um, uh, she she could have easily end up botching it up and being in a more vegetative state. And so that was terrifying to her. And one of the conversations that Alan and I had had after he was diagnosed was he felt his mother would have made the same choice if she could have had the support that he had. So talk to me a little bit about VSED and what is that? It stands for, it's an acronym, it stands for Voluntarily Stopping Eating and Drinking. And it's used as a means to end your life in a compassionate kind of way if you have the right kind of support. If you or I just went to our bed now and nobody was around us and we started stopped eating and drinking, we would suffer. You know, I'm sure there are people who have done that and we have suffered. This is nothing new, Kimberly. People have been not eating and drinking prior to their death for many, many, many years. Um, actually, um, for Spiritual reasons, there are many people in India, they're part of the Jains, J-A-I-N-S, and that many of them die this way. I don't know what kind of support they have or surrounding it. So this is a way where you stop eating and drinking and within 10 to 14 days, you have a natural death, meaning that your body organically breaks down and you die an organic death. Um, hunger is not an issue. Within a couple of days at the most, People are no longer hungry. That's not what kills somebody. Um, we could go f without food for quite a long time as long as we had liquids. But the, the dehydration is what kills somebody. And the dehydration is what causes the discomfort and pain. It can. It's every person who goes through VSED is going to have a different experience. So when your husband started talking about end of life, his desires, this was discussed. Every detail was discussed. We had that kind of a relationship. There wasn't anything that we couldn't discuss. And nor were we secretive about anything that we were talking about because we knew we were paving the way for others in the future. So when he was had this uh, sim almost simultaneous diagnosis, of Alzheimer's and cancer. The cancer needed immediate attention. That we had to address first. And there was a part of us that just said, Alan doesn't really have Alzheimer's. I mean, we we're getting really good medical care and alternative medical care, and we're really going to be able to lick this thing. How did you feel about this whole, you know, VSED with him talking about some of you know, the unexpectedness of, of making this choice. I mean, some people feel this, this could, or fear when they hear my loved one might be stopping and eating and drinking, um, because we don't know what is going to be experienced. Because like you said, everybody, every experience is different. But tell me about how you felt when your husband and you discussed this. I want to first tell you that we did first address the cancer through using alternative means and he healed from the cancer in four months. Wow. The surgeon said, you have to have three successive surgeries. And if you don't, you will die a painful death within six to 12 months and will begin to have 
very unpleasant symptoms in as soon as two to three months. So that was the first big hurdle we had to get over. And Alan was very brave. I mean, he we were both well-versed and educated in many different kinds of healing modalities. We always have worked with a health team for many years, and he healed. So while he was going through those four months, which was hell for me and for him, having both diseases at the same time, um, but when he healed, that's when we really began to face the Alzheimer diagnosis. And there was a short period of time where we thought, well, well Alan's going to get a new lease on life for another year or two. We're going to have some quality of life here again. In a, within six to eight weeks, there was one week I remember it so well. And it was so obvious that the Alzheimer's was progressing quickly. And that week, all we did was just hold on to each other and cry and cry and cry. So when, when this became a reality, um, my first my first reaction, and it wasn't my first reaction, it was my biggest fear all along. His mother had this disease. He wasn't a real robust kind of person, you know. And um, I was went into a state of grief rather quickly. Even, even while he was living? Oh, my God, yes. Yes, I couldn't even control my grief. Um, I did my best to not express my grief when I was around him, but he knew exactly how I was feeling. Um, we had this beautiful relationship. How could I not be feeling that? And in our conversation prior, you, you even called it magical. There was this connection between you guys that is, was magical. It was magical. Um, there was, there are two beautiful things in our relationship that I miss the most. One, was almost every single day we had a deep belly laugh that was uncontrollable, that was unexplainable, that we knew why we were laughing. Anyone around us never could figure it out. And we were usually laughing about the human condition and ourselves and each other. So rather than going into, oh my God, I did this again, or I did that again, we would just break out into hysterical laughter. I don't know how or why, but we did. And, um, well, I know why. It was a wonderful relief. <laughs> what a great release. The other thing that we did that was beyond magic is um, we both played the piano, and we had two side-by-side -side keyboards, an electronic and acoustic piano, and Alan had improvised his whole life playing jazz um, since he was quite young. He was a very good musician, had played some with some very well-known musicians in his life, and I never could improvise. I always read the notes, and we began to play together, and I was I began to improvise with him for the first time in my life. And that, Kimberly, was our deepest form of communication. One of us would play a note, another one would then pick up, and then we were talking back and forth, back and forth. And often at the end, when we'd stop playing, we just had tears rolling down our face. It was so gorgeous. Like an intimate experience with music. Totally. Totally. What do you want individuals to know about this whole V.S.? ED. What, I mean, what are some of the misconceptions that people feel? Well, one of the one of the things to know is, and one of the reasons why I'm doing the work I'm doing, um, it's really my work is really about having more choice around and and end of life options. It's not just VSED. VSED is an option, but because of the misinformation, it's not really available 
to people. People don't know about it and people are terrified about it. And I imagine, I think you'll agree that most people are just terrified about dying. And so we don't even think about it. So I had no book, no guidebook, no person to really go to when this happened to us. I had to figure it all out. I had to find the resources. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do now for others is trying to help them with, with resources. So with the proper medical support, a person can have a good death through voluntary stopping eating and drinking. People need to have the right medical support, medication, and caregiving support. So what is that medical support? What, if, what was it for you and your husband, Alan? Us, it was it was actually it ended up being remarkable at the very last minute hospice said it was you know like a week before we're not going to support you we will not help you until he's at the end stage of coma um 40 about 44 percent of the hospitals and hospices in washington state are owned by the catholic church and just this is not part of their belief system However, when this happened only about a week before, when I was led to believe that they would support us, um, I really panicked. And I did contact our wonderful doctor. She was a, she's a doctor of osteopathy. And I told her what was happening with hospice. And before I could even ask her, she said to me, then I'm going to come forward and I'm going to help Alan. And Alan had been talking to her for months about his wishes. And they had a lot of conversations about end of life. And she knew that it was his right, his legal right, his emotional right, his spiritual right to be able to make this choice. And so she made house calls. Um, she was on 24-hour call. During the nine and a half days, she came to our house at least three times. And he told her prior to him starting when he was in his office that he wanted to have sufficient medication, so he didn't really even know quite what was going on. He wanted to be rather sleepy throughout this. However, on the first day, when she came and was by his bedside, he said to her, I want as little medication as possible. I want to remain as conscious as possible throughout this process. Fortunately, she's a very good doctor. She stayed one step ahead of him, and she made sure he wouldn't suffer. And so I don't think he suffered at all. At any point, you know, working with hospice patients and even asking friends and family of all different ages, you know, I, I don't people I don't think people fear death. I think people fear suffering. I agree. And, you know, when people hear that someone is stopping eating and drinking, they feel like, oh, they're suffering. And a lot of people, even with my experiences with hospice patients in the last hours, days, they do not want food or liquids. And, you know, I, I, I talked to my hospice physician about that. I'm like, look, a lot of people, you know, if you're sick, people want to feed you. Um, and families have a hard time not seeing someone drinking and eating. Yet this hospice physician said, look, at the end of life, eating and drinking could cause more suffering because the body is shutting down. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, it's a little different with VSED because Alan had a healthy body and a sick brain when he started. He may have been healthier than he had been in a long time because he healed from cancer. 
So we've all heard stories of people who are old and get toward the end of their life and they lose their desire to eat as much or drink as much, etc. This is not that kind of a situation. So one of the places I did get some guidance from was End of Life Washington. And I talked with one of their volunteer physicians and he suggested, and Alan did this, um, that Alan only eat no more than 500 calories a day for five days before he started. And that's what he chose to do. Um, he never complained of of hunger. He did complain of thirst. On the fifth day um, of this fast, um, he asked me for water twice. And he wasn't his wasn't that sharp at that point, you know? And this is how I answered him very directly. I said, I will give you whatever you want. But you said you want to die rather than live into the late stages of Alzheimer's. And if you drink water, it will prolong the process. So would you rather have me give you a glass of water? Or would you rather have me just spray mists of water into your mouth until you're satisfied? And he understood me both times. And he said, just the mists of water. And I would spray it and spray it. And he would lap it up like a little kitty. You know, I mean, just lap it up. And then finally he said, that's enough. Wow. Tell me how long it took from the 500 calories um, for the first five days. How long did it take for this process? So he ate no more than 500 calories for five days, and then that was it, and didn't have anything more to um, eat or drink for the next nine and a half days. And he went into a coma maybe the last, I don't know, 12 hours or so, 15 hours um, at the most, you know, the last day. And um, I was communicating with him while he was in a coma when he was dying. I was helping him release from his body. I've tra been trained in um, therapeutic touch, which um, Alan and I both learned from nurses in the 1990s. And I was doing therapeutic touch on him at the very last, um, the, in the last minutes. And um, I was talking to him and telling him I was going to be all right and that it was okay if he let go and how courageous he was and how proud I was and how how um, he was going to get his wish. He wasn't going to have to live into the late stages of Alzheimer's. And our doctor had just left the house when I went in to start talking to him. And she had just said to me, Phyllis, his heart is strong. He's brain dead at this point. Only his brainstem is alive, but he's going to probably live at least another one to three days because his heart is strong. It's healthy. And I went in and I started talking to him and doing therapeutic touch with him. And he died in 15 minutes. Wow. You talk about a conscious death. Talk to me a little bit about what you mean by a conscious death. I think the whole notion of conscious dying begins when we're healthy. I'm already preparing for my death. I'm already beginning to think of the ways, I mean, I agree with you. I don't want to suffer at the end of my life. Um, so I think a conscious death has a lot to do with how we prepare ahead of time. That may include what emotional issues do we have to clear up in our life? Um, what are the physical issues that we're dealing with? How do we, how are we going to take care of those physical issues? How are we going to walk 
this path to um, the end of our life and knowing that this is what is going to occur. Are we going to deny it? Are we going to embrace it? My husband was curious about what was going to come next, if anything was going to come next. There was nothing, there's nothing to not look at. It's a reality. We're all going to die. You are right. I don't think anyone has ever escaped it. No. And so, and he modeled a conscious death because because of what he did to prepare himself for this experience. And you feel that's very key when it, when it comes to far before you die is, is the preparation. Absolutely. He had time to say goodbye to his family and friends. He discussed his, ish, his decision with family and friends. Um, he was so clear about what it was that he was doing. And this clarity helped him get in touch with just how grateful he was for the good life he had lived. So Washington State, um, they do have a thing called medical aid and dying. So talk to me a little bit about the choice between medical aid and dying and the choice that you and your okay. husband made. So medical aid and dying, the death with dignity, is not available to people with Alzheimer's or most neurological disease because you have to be within the last six months of life mentally competent and be able to self-administer the drug. So he did have the death with dignity when he had cancer. He actually qualified it, and I had the prescription. When he healed from cancer, we could not use it with the, with the Alzheimer's. So it wasn't really an option, but he said that even if he could have had the choice, he wanted to have a more organic, natural death. And for me, as his wife, it would have been almost horrifying for me to have him alive and then in 10 minutes be asleep and never wake up again and be dead in another 20 minutes. It was much easier, I think, for both of us. Um, Mike, you know, it was more, most important what he wanted. And he got his, he got his wish. So, you know, like you said, you had to dig for a lot of resources when it came to providing your husband, you know, these desires and wishes that he, he wanted. And, I believe that has inspired you to write a book. It has. Um, I'll first tell you that in 2015, I spent most of the year writing what is today the most detailed information on the internet today about our story. And um, I did write a book. I thought, have thought about it from before he died. And I'm very proud that it's done. The manuscript is with my editor. It is called Choosing to Die, A Personal Story. Elective, and then the subtitle is Elective Death by Voluntarily Stopping Eating and Drinking in the Face of Degenerative Disease. It's a very, very beautifully um, representation of our lives. It's written more like a memoir, but it includes all everything that he had to do even down to the detail of the, the list of items that the caregiver has to have in the house to take care of a person in the situation. Um, every single day for the nine and a half days is described in detail. Um, my grieving process, uh, everything, uh, what, how the community responded, how hospice responded. It's, it's, it, there's a lot of information and it's not a very long book, you know, in a couple or three evenings, um, you can go through this in a very gentle and beautiful kind of way. Well, you mentioned your website. And the whole VSED is one choice out of so many other choices. So let's, let's allow that listeners, how do they find you? What, what is your web address? So it's under my name, 
phyllisschachter.com. And I'm going to spell it for you because it's my name is usually misspelled, and it's P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-S-H-A-C-T-E-R, phyllisschachter.com. And um, the emphasis is... Um, sharing information through our personal story. I have been interviewed and given a lot of public appearances in the last three years um, since I gave my TED talk, my TEDx talk, and that is on the homepage of my website. And um, it's all on my website. And um, the book is very different though. The book definitely is not a replacement for, for the website. Yeah. When do you hope the book is going to be actual, um, be able to be bought or published or how do we get to that? Thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, I'm having my book release celebration on April 9th in Bellingham, Washington. So by then it will be able to be purchased um, in a paperback form on Amazon. And so people just have to go on Amazon, put my name in, I'm choosing to die and, and, and it's there. And I can't think of anybody who's of adult age that could not benefit from this. And the interesting thing is that there are a lot of young people I share my story with. They get it. They get it more than a lot of older people. And another reason why this book is so important and why my information is so important is um, I've already helped, you know, a lot of people who have contacted me and have helped guide them with information. And they their loved ones have had good deaths. I just got a... a, a just the day before yesterday, I got an email from a woman thanking me for um, for helping them and, and explained the kind of death her husband had. And she said it would be all right if I used her story as one of the case histories. Well, I think this book is going to be a, a, a total labor of love, and I can't wait to read it. April 9th, it is out on Amazon where you can purchase it. And also, you know, the website has multiple, multiples of resources. And I just can't thank you enough. My one last question is, you know, writing a book about death and dying and seeing someone that you were so intimately connected with. How do you want to face your end of life? Consciously and peacefully, the two people I have been the closest to in my life, my mother and my husband, I have been privileged to be at their bedside when they both died. My mother had a very different kind of death. She was a healthy woman, died at 95 and a half. And one morning she woke up in a semi-coma and four days later she was she died. And we had a gorgeous conversation the night before that occurred, um, before she woke up in the semi-coma. Um, about her, about dying. And uh, she wasn't afraid at all. That, she's my role model. If I, if I get any choice at all, I want to die like my mom died. And if I need to VSAD, then I want to use the role model that my husband was because he had a good death. And I'm going to have a good death because I'm already planning for it now. That's amazing. I cannot wait to read your book. And as soon as I finish reading it, I'm shipping it to you for you to put your little signature on it to ship it right back to me. Thank you. So before we get off, just say my name again and spell it or say it clearly because it's not an easy last name. Well, go right ahead. Do it. Okay. So it's Phyllis Schachter, P-H-Y-L-L-I-S, Schachter, S-H-A-C-T-E-R. 
I thank you so much for interviewing me today. I, I tell you, you know, it's it's an amazing experience what um, this podcast is doing for me is, is meeting people, um, ordinary people living extraordinary lives and trying to help people um, learn about choices at end of life. And I think you play a very big role in that. And I say thank you to that. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you so much. And onward, my friend. Good luck with the book launch. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.